Take your Bible with me, please, and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17. This last semester while I was at school, I had the opportunity to attend a performance of the opera Samson and Delilah, which of course is based on the story of Samson and Delilah in the book of Judges. And as I was watching this opera, the final scene uh, came and the Philistines are in their temple worshiping their god Dagon. And there's a huge statue of that god, that idol that they were worshiping. And they were celebrating because they had finally caught Samson and they thought they had victory over the Israelites. And involved in this worship was dancing and drunkenness and offering up of gifts to this idol, which on the stage had to be 20 or 25, 30 feet tall. And as I was watching this, I was just appalled at some of the practices that they were using to worship this God who didn't even exist. It was just a piece of nothing, a piece of stone up there on the stage. But later, as I reflected on that, I thought, I realized that oftentimes my worship is also misdirected. And a lot of times I worship something or someone else other than God. And really, that's, that's a natural problem for us as humans. We naturally tend to take our worship and to give it to something or someone other than God. But God shows us the solution to this problem that we have as humans and in his word. And one place we're going to see that tonight is in Acts chapter 17 in a sermon that Paul preaches where he's going to tell us where our worship should be directed. Look with me at verse 16 of chapter 17 of Acts. It says, Now while Paul waited for them, which is his companions that were with him, at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So Paul comes to the city of Athens and he looks around and he sees that this city is wholly or completely given over to idolatry. These people were very religious. They worshipped anything and everything that they could find. And it continues in verse 17. He says, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So he goes and does his usual practice that we see through the book of Acts where he goes to a city, he finds the synagogue, and he talks to the Jews first, and he tells them the gospel. And the next verse, verse 18, tells us about how some philosophers that were Epicureans and Stoics came and started talking to him. And the Epicureans, they believed that the chief goal of life was pleasure. All you had to do was be happy. And they had all these gods that they worshipped, but they kind of viewed them as gods that were kind of far off and distant, and we have to worship them to appease them and to keep them from being mad at us. But beyond that, they don't really care what I do. And as long as I am happy, that's all that matters. And so they would do whatever it took to make sure that they were comfortable and happy. And the Stoics, on the other hand, they were very in tune with nature. They were very humanistic, very self-sufficient kinds of people. And the whole city, it says, was given to this idolatry. And when Paul begins to talk, he starts preaching the gospel. And the people notice that there's something different about what Paul is saying. And so they come 
and they want to hear what he has to say. Some of them say, oh, he's just a babbler. He's just crazy. He's just trying to stir up trouble. And other people say, oh, he's, he's setting forth strange gods or foreign gods that we've never heard about before. And these people were very concerned about religion. Anything that was new or that was trendy in religion, they wanted to know about it. Nobody wanted to be left out of the loop. And we see that in verse 21. It says, all the Athenians and the strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were so concerned about never making any gods angry that they had to cover everything in the way that they worshipped. And so it says that they took Paul up to the Areopagus and they set him there before the council and they wanted to hear what he had to say, not necessarily because they were interested in it as, as in they were going to believe it, but because they wanted to add it to their melting pot of everything that they believed. And so Paul has this amazing opportunity. He's in a culture where he looks around and everyone is worshiping anything and everything that feels good to them to worship. And he looks around and he sees altars all throughout the city and statues all around and idols everywhere. And he has the opportunity to say, no, there's just one God. And they have this altar to an unknown God that he recognizes he starts off his speech with that in verse 23. Uh, in verse 22, actually, he says, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious, or basically very religious. He says, As I passed by and beheld your devotions or your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. He says, You have an altar here to the unknown God. They're trying to cover all of their bases. They're so terrified that they did not want to miss out on some God that they forgot to worship. So they had an altar to this unknown God. And he says, this unknown God, God is the true God. And it's not worship anything you want however you want to worship. There's only one God. And he deserves all of your worship. And as we go through this message this evening, we're going to see that Paul has several different attributes about God that make him worthy of worship. But this isn't just for the people of Athens. And it's not just for unbelievers. Because if we tend to give our worship to things other than God, then we need this same message. And we need to know why God is worthy of our worship as well. Because of God's attributes, He is worthy of our worship, and He alone is worthy of that worship. Paul starts out, and the first attribute that he focuses on is God's sovereignty. Look with me at verse 24. Paul says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Paul starts by describing God as the creator. And these people, these people understood creation. They were, a lot of them were very humanistic. They loved nature. And so Paul stands up and says, look at the sunsets. Who made those? God. And look at all the amazing life forms everywhere. Who made those? God. And he sets God forth as the creator and says, because God is the creator... He deserves 
your worship. He continues and says, the end of verse 24, that God dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Paul says that God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything from us. We don't have to build temples so that God will dwell in them. God doesn't need somewhere to live like that. It says that He doesn't need us to serve Him. He is completely sufficient and existent all by Himself. And if we never existed, if we were never here, He would still be God. And because of that, because when we look at life in light of that, that makes me nothing. If God doesn't need me to exist, then I'm really worth nothing. And because of that, God deserves my worship. He goes on to say, verse 25, Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And Paul says that God sustains everything. The reason that I can stand here and have breath is because God sustains that in me. And the reason that tomorrow I hopefully will wake up and have another day is because God sustains me. And God keeps every man and woman alive and provides everything that they need. And so Paul's saying God is sovereign. God deserves our worship because he's sovereign. He's the creator. He is a sustainer. He's self-existent, self-sufficient, all on his own. But we tend to forget that a lot. It's very easy for us to forget that God is in control of our lives and for us to stop thinking about that truth, that reality. And these people that Paul was talking to, they didn't think that God was in control of their lives in that kind of sense. They saw him as this policeman that hopefully, or all of their gods they saw like this, that hopefully they wouldn't get in trouble. And if they did enough good things, the gods would leave them alone. But we have to remember that God is in control. A lot of times... We stop believing that God is sovereign. And because of that, somebody or something has to control our life. If God's not in control, then something else has to be in control of that. And so probably the most common thing for us to do is to make ourselves in control of our own lives. And we say, if I don't believe that God is in control of this situation, then I have to be in control of it. And so we do as much as we can and we work as hard as we can to make sure that we have everything taken care of because we have to be in control of our lives if God God is not. And so we work hard to ensure that we are financially stable or we work hard to ensure that we have the comforts that we need or that we want and we work hard to make sure that we don't face any kinds of trials. But if we are not realizing that God is in control, then what we've done is we've set ourselves up to worship ourselves really. And we don't necessarily go home and make idols of ourselves and put them in our living rooms and bow down to them. But we act like we worship ourselves. And we offer God no worship for how great he is in being in control of everything that we do. And so instead we have to realize that God is in control and we have to turn from that. 
And we have to turn to God and put our worship back where it belongs. So we worship ourselves. Sometimes we tend to worship other things. We can worship a possession that we have, or we can worship someone else if we think that they can control our lives better than God can. And all of that is misplaced worship. It's us giving worship to something that is, that's really not deserving of it. When we have God, and He is the most amazing thing that has ever existed, and He deserves all of our worship. And so Paul stresses the sovereignty of God in this speech to the people of Athens. But that, then he goes on and he focuses on another attribute. He focuses on the imminence or the closeness of God. Look with me at verse 26. Paul says, And God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And had determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So Paul says, God took one blood, one man, and he made out of that all the people, all the nations of the world. And then beyond that, he determined the times, the specific times in history when people would live, and the bounds of their habitation, the specific places where people would live. And if you think about that, that's really an awesome thought that God put every single person in a specific place in history at a specific time. And he organized all of the circumstances of their lives. And we see that God is involved in our lives. God is involved in every part of our lives. But this, this choice just isn't random. He didn't just put people in different places in different times of history for no reason at all. Verse 27 tells us the reason that God did this. It says that they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him or grasp for him and find him. God put everyone in specific situations and times and places of life so that they would seek after him and they would find him. Probably you can look back at your life and you can see circumstances that God put in your life and maybe changes that God made and ways that he led you and directed you and maybe not necessarily that you enjoyed at the time or that you would have chosen for yourself. But as you look back on those things, you see that God has been involved in your life every day in every circumstance so that you would seek him more and you would trust him more because of that. And God is involved in our lives. And Paul goes on at the end of verse 27 to say, though he be not far from every one of us. He says that God is near. See, the people that he was talking to, they thought the gods were far away. They couldn't see them. They could just imagine what they did. And they thought that they were uninvolved and uncaring. But Paul says, no, no, no. God is near. God is close. Psalm 145 says that if you call upon him, he is near to those who call on him. God is near to us. And the, the verb here indicates that it's continual nearness. God is always near. Not just sometimes and maybe not other times, but God is always near to us. 
And we easily forget that. We forget that God is right here all the time, always there for us. And then in verse 28, Paul continues to show how God is involved in our lives. He says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. So Paul takes some quotations from some poets that the people would have been familiar with. And the first one, he says, For in Him, in God, we live, we move, we have our being, we exist in God. God is involved in our lives. Because of Him, we exist. And the second quote that he says is, For we are also His offspring. And basically this has the idea of being made in the image of God. That God took the time to fashion every one of us, to fashion me in his image. He's involved in my life. He's involved in our lives. And that truth that Paul is sharing with these people is something that for us is so easy to forget day after day. And we think that God is not really that involved in my life. God is not really that close. And we take things that we can see and we can touch, and we can use every day. And we start worshiping those things because they're close to us, and we can see that. Because we forget that God is in here. And God is involved in our lives. A couple years ago, while I was counseling at camp, I had a camper who was very involved in a lot of stuff that we did all week long. Really was the epitome of a great camper. He had a lot of spirit. He participated in everything that we did. He was a lot of fun to hang around, a lot of fun to spend time with. And throughout the week, a couple different times, he mentioned offhand, hey, do you guys want to go play soccer out on the fields? And finally, the second to last day, we all decided to go out as a cabin and play a little bit of soccer with this kid. And I quickly realized why he wanted to play soccer so badly, because he was very, very good. At soccer, He was amazingly gifted. And we all sat there and watched him run in circles around us. So he scored lots of goals, and he made lots of really cool moves. And it was very clear that was something that was important to him. The last night of our services, the preacher was focusing on surrendering, surrendering your life to God. And this camper got up in the invitation, and he went forward. And I had a chance to spend some time and counsel him. And I wasn't surprised that he came forward. He was, he was interested in the services. He was involved in the devotional times. And as I talked to him, I learned what his dilemma was. He felt that he needed to serve God and that he was called to follow God. And he wanted to go to a Christian school and study to go into ministry. And at the same time, he was struggling because he knew that he could get a really good scholarship if he played soccer and that he could go to a secular school and he could have a lot of fun and be really, really good and it would help him financially and that there would be a lot of benefits to that. And he was going back and forth in this decision. And as I watched this kid, he didn't make a decision that night. He left camp and he was still unsure about what he was going to do. But that made an impact on my life. It made me realize how much of a struggle that is because 
there was something that was pulling at his heart, and it was pulling at his heart because it was something that was close to him. It was something he could do every day that he could see, and he could see the benefits of, and that he could, he could touch and play every day. And it pulled on his heart. And, and I could tell how easy it was to forget God in that kind of a situation. And to, to think that God is, is not as close as he is. That he's not in, as involved in that kid's life as he was. And I could see how much of a struggle that was. And we often face the same kind of situations. We, we see things that are close to us, whether it's a person, a relationship that we have that's very important to us, that's very close to us, or a possession that we have worked really, really hard to get, or a position that we have uh, worked and worked to get to. And we can take those things. And because they're close to us and we see them every day, they, they can start to get our worship. And even though we're not bowing down to them, they're getting all of our affection and all of our love. And we have to remember that God is near. That God is close to us. That everywhere that I go, God is always near. And God is always involved in my life. And we have to turn from those things and recognize that a lot of those things are valid things in our lives, but they're not worthy of worship. Because there's going to be a day where I lose that possession or where I can't do that activity anymore or I lose that position or that relationship. And then what do I have left to worship? And so we have to turn from those things and we have to turn from worshiping anything that is close to us and remember that God is near. He is imminent in our lives and he is the only worthy object of worship. And so Paul has shown that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything in our lives, that he's involved in our lives. He's close to us. But he has one more thing. He's not finished because at this point it'd be very easy for someone in the crowd to think, yeah, I believe God is in control. Yes, I believe God is involved in my life. But why does that have to affect me right now? Why can't I just go one more day or one more night with just a little bit of misplaced worship in my life? Why is it so important for me to get this right right now? If God's in control of everything, then why can't I live the way I want to and just trust God to work everything out? And Paul has the answer to that. He continues by showing us that God is just. He talks about God's justice. In verse 29, he leads into it. He says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. So he uses that quote that we're the offspring of God, we're made in his image, as a bridge to say, how can we think that we can depict God as something that, that is made by men. If we are made in the image of God and we are so complex, then how could we take something that we made that even though it might be valuable like gold or silver, it's inanimate 
and it has no power and it cannot do anything. How can we take that and worship it and make that represent God? And he continues in verse 30 and says, In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. What Paul's saying is that in the past, sometimes God would look at people's ignorance because they were worshiping idols and they were trying to use idols to represent God. And sometimes he winked at that. He overlooked it. He decided in his goodness and his mercy because the people didn't understand that he would pass over that and he would not judge them for that. But then Paul says, now we don't have an excuse because we know the truth. He says, but God commands all men everywhere to repent. So why is it so important for us to repent? Why is it so important for us to acknowledge that we're wrong and we're worshiping something besides God and to turn to God and give him that worship? Verse 31, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Jesus Christ. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Paul says, why is it important for us to repent? Because God will judge us. And as much as we try to not believe that and to think that it's not true, Paul says you have to remember that God has appointed a day where he will judge us for what we have done. And he will judge us through Jesus Christ. And we so easily forget that God will judge us. And we think that we can live and give our worship to something else and I'll, I'll fix that next week. I'll fix that tomorrow. But right now, this is what has all of my attention and all of my affection. I remember uh, when I was in high school, one specific day that I was talking to some of my friends and a girl that I knew was talking about something that she had done over the weekend. She had been at a party out at a bonfire, I think. Um, we lived in kind of a rural area, so a lot of people had farmland and they had made this bonfire. And they were sitting around it enjoying time with their friends. And then she mentioned that there had been some alcohol involved in this party and that she had been part of that. And the first thing that I thought was, how could this girl do that? Like, I know her. How, why would she do something like that? And then reality hit me. She wasn't a believer. I went to a public high school, and most of my friends, most of my peers, were not believers. And as I watched this girl, and I, I watched a lot of my peers graduate and go on with their lives, they had no concept of the judgment of God. There was nothing in them that said, I'm responsible for what I do, that God will ever judge me for anything that I ever do. And so they lived their lives, and all the decisions they made were for themselves. What makes me the most happy? What pleases me right now? Or if it doesn't please me right now, what am I working at so that in the future it will please me? And in the same way, even though we would profess to be believers, we have the same tendency to forget that God will judge us for our sin. And he won't judge us 
by sending us to hell for eternity because Jesus Christ has paid that for us. But he will judge us and he will hold us accountable for what we've done. And so we have to remember that God will judge us. And we have to turn from our whatever we're worshiping and give that worship to God. Sometimes we begin to live in sin. It creeps up on us and takes us by surprise. And we go day after day and we think that we're doing okay because we're handling it. And we forget that God is going to judge us. And we forget that his mercy is so great and that all we have to do is turn to him and repent of our sin and give our worship back to him. And really the best part about this attribute of God, because it sounds so negative, it sounds like that view that the people of Athens had, that God was just going to strike them someday and that, that they just had to be careful that they didn't make God mad. And this sounds so negative like that, but the best part about this is that last phrase in verse 31 where he says, he gave us an assurance of that by raising Christ from the dead. God will judge us, but there's hope. Because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so as I go in my life every week and I find different sins that are struggling to take me down, Where's my hope at? It's not in the fact that God will judge me. That's a motivation for me to worship him and to do what's right, but that's not a motivation for me to get rid of my guilt. But in the same verse, he mentions the gospel and Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that in the course of that, that he spent more time on that because that was what he was always preaching. He was always preaching Christ and his crucifixion and how that affects us. And because of that, we can have hope that we can even turn to God. Because if Christ never died for us, I could sit here all day and recognize that my worship is on the wrong things and that I'm worshiping a person or possession or position that I have or anything else or even myself. And I could recognize that, but I could never do anything about it. And I would be stuck to live in that the rest of my life. But because Christ died for me, that's the hope that I have that I can even turn from that and turn to God. And in verse 30, when, when Paul says that he commands all men everywhere to repent, that word repent also has this continual idea, like it's something we're going to be doing all the time. Why does Paul say that? Because he knows we're going to have to do it all the time. There's not a moment in our lives where we're finally surrendered to God completely and we never ever struggle with worshiping anything else. But at the same time, God's grace is the same every day. And God's mercy is always the same. And we can always repent and always turn to God and worship Him as He deserves. At the end of the chapter, Luke, who wrote this book, shows us what some of the responses of people were. Verse 32, he says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, 
and others with them. So Luke shows that after Paul spoke this message, people had different responses to it. Some people right away, they mocked. They said, we're not going to believe that. We're going to worship we don't want to worship and just leave us alone. Some people said, uh, I haven't decided what I think yet. I'll hear you again sometime. I'll think about it. I'll see. Maybe you're right. Maybe I just need some time. And we have to imagine that some of those people walked away and they never responded. That they went on with their lives and whatever had their hearts continued to pull them in. But some people believed. Verse 34 describes some of those people that believed. Some people said, you know what? That's right. What God says is right. That I've been worshiping something else and I've been putting it above God and I have to give my worship back where it belongs. Because God is sovereign. He's in control of my life. God is close to me. He is near all the time. And because God will judge me and he'll hold me accountable for what I do. Because of that, he deserves all worship. He deserves all of our worship. We're not necessarily the same kind of crowd that Paul preached to. We don't have idols set up all over the place. We don't have statues and altars. But we can give our hearts away. And we can worship things other than God. And so this message is for us too. God deserves all of our worship. And we have to worship him with all of our hearts. And so we have to come humbly to God on the basis of Jesus Christ and ask God to show us where in our lives we're worshiping something besides him. Even if we don't recognize it, even if we don't perceive that we're putting this above God, we have to ask him to open our eyes to see that. And then we have to ask him to give us grace to worship him and to turn from that whatever has our heart, whatever we're worshiping, and to turn to God and worship Him alone. Because He alone is worthy of all of our worship. We're going to go ahead and pray and close, and then we'll have a moment of invitation. Dear Father, we praise You so much for Your goodness to us. Thank you for your love that you have displayed on the cross and really every day in our lives as you lead us and direct us in many ways. And I pray that our hearts will be open to you now, that you would work through your word and through your spirit. And I pray that you would show us areas of our lives, Lord, where we are worshiping anything other than you and help us to realize how foolish that is and to realize that you are worthy of all of our worship. I pray that we would turn from that, and we would, we would really live a lifestyle of continuously turning from other things to you, and putting you back on in the place that you deserve. I praise you so much for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd stand, please. In a moment, the piano will play. As we have this time of invitation, it's an opportunity for us to respond to God's word. It's an opportunity for you, right where you are in your seat, to search your heart and to see 
what has taken God's place and to ask God to help you turn from that and turn back to Him. That's the piano place. Thank you for being here tonight. We'll close in a word of prayer, and then we will have our closing song. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your love for us. I pray that you would help us as we go out this week to our various responsibilities and activities. Turn our hearts towards you. Help us to know you more every day, Lord. I pray that you'd be with those who are traveling, with Pastor and the others who are with him. Give them safety on the road and help them to have an enjoyable time together. And we just thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for salvation and help us to live in light of that every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your hymnals. We're going to sing the first verse of 143, Blessed Assurance. <laughs> 